jury selection began today in Dominion Voting Machine's $1.6 billion defamation suit against Fox News. Dominion accuses Fox of maliciously misleading viewers into believing that Dominion Voting Machines was part of a vast conspiracy to steal the 2020 election for Joe Biden. Lawyers for Fox say this case is about more than just Fox News. It's about protecting Fox News's constitutional right to destroy our Constitution. Dominion, as I just said, is asking for $1.6 billion in damages, which seems like a lot until you consider that was what Roger Ailes budgeted each year for raping his female employees. Roger Ailes had a $1.6 billion a year rape budget. Roger Ailes, founder of Fox News. Dominion is also suing MyPillow CEO Mike Lindell and Rudy Giuliani for considerably less than $1.6 billion, since between the two of them, there's maybe a hot plate and a $5 gift certificate to win Dixie. Jury selection began today with 300 potential jurors summoned to a Delaware courtroom, begging the question, Delaware actually has 300 people? Delaware? Delaware is just an offshore money laundering operation. I'm being serious. Its official nickname is the Suspicious Financial Activity State. On Wednesday, the judge in the case reprimanded Fox News for withholding key documents and said, moving forward, the company now has, quote, a credibility problem. Credibility problem, by the way, was the original name for the five. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. Now, I don't know how this Dominion case plays out. A lot of legal experts say Fox News is on shaky legal ground. Defamation is hard to prove in America, but willful negligence is not protected by our First Amendment. So if you broadcast news that you know is wrong, but you go ahead and broadcast it anyway, that's willful negligence. That's defamation. They may lose. This is an important case because Fox News is, and it remains, the number one source of news on cable television. In other words, it's for old people who can't cut the cord because the people running the assisted living facility won't trust them with a pair of scissors. Fox News is for people who are too stupid to realize cable television is a complete ripoff. Right? It's a ripoff. We all know that. And if you're too stupid to figure that one out, then you're an easy mark for being sold reverse mortgages, gold for your IRA, or ideas like tax cuts for the rich will balance the federal budget. It's the perfect audience. People who still have cable, it's perfect. Perfect audience for people who want to sell things that are fraudulent. Its entire audience, Fox News's entire audience, is over the age of 65. And Fox News is designed to accelerate the speed at which an already diminishing mind deteriorates. Fox News speeds up the aging process. What I'm saying is check your grandfather's cable package. It may not be Alzheimer's. It 
It just might be Fox News. If you or someone you know is a senior with cable, you run the risk of early onset of dementia. Warning signs include Brett Baer, Tucker Carlson, and Sean Hannity. So why is Fox News popular among people with one and a half feet in the grave? It is old people. Why? Well, first off, it's important to remind everyone that not all senior citizens are completely cut off from their loved ones, which is why most senior citizens don't watch Fox News. Most senior citizens don't watch Fox News because they live productive lives, enjoying their friends. And if they're lucky, their grandchildren, they've accrued enough life experience to know they're borrowing the planet. And the only way to find peace with the human condition is to dedicate all your free time to leaving this place better than when we found it. Most senior citizens know that, which is why most senior citizens don't watch Fox News. But there are the few million who do watch Fox News because they hate their grandchildren. They hate their wives, their neighbors. They hate everyone. And it's everyone else's fault, not theirs. That's why they watch Fox News. Nobody invites them anywhere because they're insufferable pricks. Their phone never rings. Their phone never rings. And, and Fox News is the only company they have. It's on 24 hours a day, teaching them, reminding them to blame everyone else for their miserable, loveless existence. Senior citizens who watch Fox News are incapable of affection. That's why they love the flag and our military, because our flag and our military never told them they were a lousy lay. Nobody is effing these senior citizens because they're lousy lays. So the only thing they can love is the flag or our military. This is the channel for men and women who pretend at humanity. They'd rather cry at the national anthem than from their grandkids. Because grandkids always ask, why does Pop Pop smell like a fart that died from cabbage poisoning? The people who watch Fox News smell like a fart that died from cabbage poisoning. I've been to Fox News. I've walked around their headquarters. It smells like a fart that died from cabbage poisoning. People who watch Fox News smell. The people on Fox News all smell. The men, the women, all their orifices are sugary mixtures of yeast, decay, and fly larvae. Okay, all flight controllers, go, no, go for landing. Retro. Go. Fido. Go. Guidance. Go. Control. Go. Telcom. Go. GNC. Go. Ecom. Go. Surgeon. Go. Capcom, we're go for landing. Eagle Houston, you're go for landing. Over. Roger, understand. Go for landing. 3,000 feet.
You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program. You sad, pathetic hump. Time now for the professors and Marianne. Professor Marianne Cummings is a particle physicist with the Fermi Lab. An amazing, an amazing artist, incredible artist, as well as Parks Commissioner for Aurora, Illinois, which is the second largest city in Illinois. I think they should have gotten the Democratic Convention. I, I don't know why some other town in Chicago. What Chicago. do you have against Aurora? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, you're wishing you're wishing the Democratic uh, National Convention on the poor people of Aurora. I think the Aurora yeah, but- Aurora police can crack protesters' skulls just as wide open as the Chicago police can. Oh yeah, they're getting there. Um, <laughs> they don't quite have the military arsenal that Chicago has built up, but you know, yeah. That is Professor Marion Cummings, the real deal. You, you know, she knocks on doors. Mm-hmm. And then steals things, uh, but no, uh, she knocks on doors. You're out there. You're better than most of us when it comes to uh, walking, literally walking the walk. And uh, so, thank you for being here. And Professor Adnan Hussein co-hosts Gorilla History. We'll find out who's on Gorilla History this week, as well as the Mudgeless podcast. Chairman of the Religion Department over at Queen's University, up in Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada, much better place than America. And uh, last week, we had a really great show last week, and I promised to get to some of the questions. I don't remember who the audience member was, but he asked an interesting question, and we have the expert on religion here, Professor Adnan Hussein. He had asked if the New Testament, if Christianity in many ways was reactionary, a return to paganism. And I thought that was an interesting question. What is paganism and how could you make an argument that uh, Christianity returns to paganism. How could well, that? Well, I think perhaps the question came out of uh, identifying uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam as monotheistic religions in our conversation. Um, and so I think this question comes out of that. It is true that Jews and Muslims in the medieval period thought Christianity really might be idolatrous since they were seemed to be worshiping, uh, you know, icons, images, uh, sculpture uh, of a man on a cross uh, as God. So, uh, you know, there were some concerns that perhaps this wasn't uh, technically a monotheism and that it was a return to pagan idolatry. But I think the question really comes more out of the fact that uh, in the Latin West, where um, Christianity spread, um, you know, uh, the Roman Catholic Church, um, although we often forget the fact that the old centers of Christianity before the conversion of Constantine and its adoption 
um, as the official religion of the Roman Empire, that the real old centers of Christianity were places like Ethiopia, Armenia. These are the first independent uh, countries that were governed and ruled by Christians. What and years are we talking about? Uh, we're talking about in the third, fourth uh, centuries, really? okay. um, the sec second, third century, um, when, um, you know, Christian missionaries um, managed to go further east and establish these independent polities. So even before Rome, you have Ethiopia and Armenia as centers of Christianity. Um, but we're much more aware of its uh, travels westward to what we know as Europe um, and Western Europe, Latin Catholic Europe. And the way in which it uh, spread was through conversion usually of Germanic tribal lords or kings um, who then made it the official religion. Um, but uh, it meant that also a lot of uh, communities and people didn't want to give up all of their old ways and um, just like the Roman pantheon was capable of incorporating local tribal uh, gods uh, from places like North Africa or Spain where the Roman Empire conquered in order to create some sort of political and religious harmony, so too did newly incorporated and converted countries and societies um, in Western Europe roll over a lot of their pagan practices and saints um, uh, they became saints under the mm -hmm. Catholics, um, whereas they'd been, you know, holy places in uh, pagan, you know, religion or polytheistic uh, pre-existing, uh, you know, European folk uh, practices among the Germanic tribes or the Celts, etc. And um, so their, their um, local shrines became uh, sites of pilgrimage associated with a Christian uh, saint. And so you have this accommodation that's taking place. And so a lot of people would say um, that in many ways, Europe didn't really become Christian. Um, and then what kind of Christian Christianity did it really adopt? Um, given the, you know, character of the Catholic liturgy and the, you know, role of the saints and the saints feasts and festival days and so on until really like the 13th century. So many of these societies were nominally converted in the sixth or seventh or eighth centuries. Um, but, uh, you know, they didn't necessarily go to annual confession. They didn't attend mass. Um, you know, how much of the doctrines of the church were really, you know, uh, informing their view of the world. Um, it's not always clear. We have these places like monasteries and we have these um, churches that are built for the bishop, uh, you know, for bishoprics. Right. And those were centers of Christian culture. But out in the countryside, many pagan practices continue to survive, are transformed. Uh, and inform and become part of Catholic religious culture. To call someone a pagan is pejorative, like to call somebody a Philistine is yes. pejorative. Uh, I, I would assume there aren't any Philistines left, uh, but... Uh, Only on this show, David. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, my understanding of paganism... And I don't know anything. And Professor Marianne, please join. Uh, 
I always think of Abraham destroying the idols Mm -hmm. and then discovering God and that you cannot touch God, that you can't see God, uh, that that you can't have any uh, tangibles and that pagans, that there's something you look down on people who need to you to to touch something to have some kind of totem to worship right. uh, but we see that in all over the world people build totems to signify something and 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 worship like the cross for example or the torah i mean the torah the the when i go to temple the way they it's it's pretty much like paganism to me, the way, you know, if you drop the Torah, the, everybody has to fast for 30 days. So uh, what, I don't know how that's not. Is that what is paganism? Well, I mean, technically it is, as you were saying, it's, you know, kind of worship. It's, you know, well, firstly, it is just a pejorative. OK. And sometimes it meant just, you know, the nations or the peoples like it didn't necessarily always have a theological sort of context. It was those who were not part of your particular like Gentile. Yes, that's right. Similar to that. And you see that in in, um, you know, in um, in like uh, Latin texts, medieval Latin texts, they call, you know, groups Paganos or Ethnicos, which means that they are a nation or tribal community that's outside of the particular, um, you know, favored community here, the identity group uh, that's that's got like an established confessional form of religion. Does Islam have totems? Does Buddhism? Well, yes. I mean, you know, the, the Islam actually emerged in the part of the Near East that still had pagan, you know, polytheistic, idolatrous religion, whereas the rest of the Near East had become Christian or Jewish or even Zoroastrian, which was a confessional religion. It was dualist, but it still, you know, kind of had a more unitary uh, sort of form. And the Arabian Peninsula, however, was a last surviving outpost. And as a result, that is the confrontation in the Quran is between monotheism and idolatrous worship or the association of partners in divinity with God, i.e. the idea of a pantheon or a panoply of divine forces represented through nature or uh, the supernatural, right? So these are concepts that are anathema to monotheistic theology. And so you find, however, in Islam as well, that there are aspects of what was part of pagan religious practice. The fact that the Kaaba is the central shrine for Muslims, it was a repository for the idols of the tribes people of the, of the era, the Quraysh was a sort of central shrine or a haram that is a sanctified place. And um, even the Hajj rituals, it struck some people as a little too close to what were obviously uh, also pagan practices in the pre-Islamic era. So circumambulating around the the Kaaba, um, adoring the black stone, which is, uh, you know, part of the structure. and uh, had some, you know, legendary, uh, you know, kind of uh, stories about its its appearance, you know, as a stone, a holy stone that descended from heaven. 
these were all pretty reminiscent of practices around uh, the shrine of, of the Kaaba when it was a pagan mm -hmm. shrine. So all of these religious monotheistic religions, and you see this so clearly in the Hebrew Bible, um, you know, in the early books of the Bible, God is, uh, you know, uh, operating in a world where there are other divinities that are yeah. rivals that he's competing with. Um, it just so happens that he is the God that has an exclusive relationship with one people. And it's only later in the later books that you are, you are to understand a, a different kind of conception of monotheism, that it's not just that you should be loyal to this one God, it's that that's the only one that exists. So that's, but that's a theological leap. All of these three religions do emerge out of um, a context where there's idolatrous worship. There are those physical totems of people's relationship to some supernatural power. Uh, and it's very hard to overcome that in popular folk religion, even within these monotheistic traditions. You find that there are Sufi shrines, people want to go and visit the Sufi olia or saints uh, for healing and so on, just as they did in you know the Catholic uh, saints as objects of pilgrimage who performed miracles of healing and so on for, for people as part of the miracles that testified to their particular holy status as in intermediaries. So, um, you know, there's never a perfect transcendence of the pagan. I mean, the pagan is, is, is embedded in all of these, in all of these religions and in all of these practices. And the lesson to me is, is that religions aren't just a box of practices and doctrines that just appears in time fully formed. They're always changing, developing and evolving. And in many ways, when we think of conversion, it's not just Augustine's kind of idea in the confessions that now he throw he has a sudden spiritual transformation. And so he throws off all of his previous ideas and beliefs and practices. Conversion is a much more social process by which new ideas are absorbed as well as uh, old ideas are re-expressed in new ways. To it's compete... I, I would I would assume there's a free marketplace of ideas and religions are competing with one another to keep their followers. I, I, I think the mm. uh, the the, uh, the Talmud perhaps was a response to the New Testament where. Oh, yes. Oh, you see so much in Jewish extra scriptural literature of responses to the response Christianity. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for you know, you've got, for example, a Jewish counter gospel. You know, people don't really, you know, like to talk too much about this. What is that? I've never you know, heard it gets of that. Pretty nasty, but you know, the toli <laughs> the Toledot Yeshu. What is which that? Which is basically the history of you know Joshua Yeshua. Uh, it's it's Jesus, and it's a counter gospel. It's a Jewish counter gospel. It's a story uh, like the life of, of Jesus. Brian? Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's interesting. The, yeah, I mean, basically, they say he's he was a magician. He learned the forbidden, hidden name of God, and he used it to perform these miracles. So they know that the Gospels say he, you know, raised um, Lazarus from the dead. He did all of these things. They don't say, oh, no, he didn't do that. That's all, you know, bunk. They say, yeah, he did those things. But why did he do them? Not because he's some son of God. That's a ridiculous idea that goes against monotheism. It's because he was an evil magician. Wow. You know, and when was this uh, written? So 
I have done. Well, this is, I think, I'm not sure the exact dating. It's hard to find exactly, you know, when. Do, you know, do, do they like, have copies of it? Does it exist? Oh, yeah, it exists. Yeah, it exists. There have been edited copies of this. You find references to it and you have some of these stories have been preserved. And it's, you know, it's clearly from late antiquity, probably fourth century, third or fourth century, when Jews are competing with this new religious community that has also absorbed quite a lot of Jews, you know, early on before oh. the so-called parting of the ways, you know, you right. have Jewish Christians. I mean, that's the whole problem that Paul is writing about in Corinthians and in these various letters to Christian communities is as Gentiles became followers of Christ, since most of the early ones were Jews, mm -hmm. obviously, the question was, well, well, do you, if you want to follow these teachings of Jesus, do you have to follow Jewish law as well? Right. And Paul is the one who comes and says, no, you don't. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be something different. And it's better to be circumscribed in spirit than in the body. So you don't have to go, you, if you're going to convert, wow. you don't have to go and get cut. You know, I mean, this was like what people were worried about. We, we have yeah. to move on because I want to talk about Lula in a second. Are there courses on the role magic plays like magicians played in religion? Is that something? Absolutely. That I mean, we have uh, at least one or two ourselves on, on the books. Um, magic is very, very important. And in fact, you have even like, you know, Gospel of Thomas and some others. There's the Egyptian, you know, all these Gospels, you know, were floating around. Some of them become canonized and others mm -hmm. are considered apocrypha or are suppressed. You've got some that are like Egyptian ones. And, uh, you know, Jesus is a sorcerer in, in, in these. He is a sort of mage. He's got, you know, hidden knowledge. It's very much like, you know, magic. Um, and in fact, that's exactly the same kind of charge that, that the Jews, you know, were making about Jesus. It's just that it's evil magic rather than good magic. So, wow. Um, well, a lot of there's, religion, a, there's another of aspect to, to it also. Now, I, I grew up. I went to a Catholic high school, Our Lady of Mercy, but it was a very, a very groovy liberal time for the Catholic Church, as liberal as it can get. And uh, so there was a book in my library there called The Golden Bow, and it was by oh, some stuffy old Brit. But you know, he was just doing comparative religions, and there was one, well, one or two chapters on the Middle East, and basically the things that up to now I was a little shocked. I was fifteen when I read it, but the idea of uh, God coming down uh, and a bird coming down into and being born of a virgin and then walking the earth for 33 years and then being sacrificed specifically crucifixion was just you know a standard feature and by rising from the dead three days later it was just a standard feature of a whole slew of religions in the Middle East and even Egyptian gods, I think Horus is that's his uh, arc, and it was kind of at the time, you know, like fins on a 1950s Chevy. You couldn't sell it without this, and I think that's a little flippant. I think it's probably shorthand. All these things were kind of shorthand at a time when even people who could read got most of their practical information by the spoken word. You know, you this was a very shorthand kind of way of introducing someone like this was a special person, and here are the teachings. And, uh, I remember the golden. How was it pronounced? It was called the golden bow, as in you know, like James a Frazier. bow. I remember oh, yeah, Francis right. Ford Coppola used that as a, a primary source for Apocalypse Now. 
uh, along with the Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. I guess it would be Kurtz was becoming a god among mm -hmm. pagans and uh, right. So that would be uh, interesting. Well, the the first commandment, as I understand it, is God saying, "Don't cheat on me." It's it's I and nobody else, mm -hmm. and don't don't start seeing other gods because I'm. I will get even with you. Uh, so it's not a good idea to worship people. They'll disappoint you. <laughs> Lula, however, took over in January of this year. I, Lula is as close to, I fear God on earth. And then it makes you wonder, you know, to me, Bernie is, you know, George McGovern, uh, but they're never given a chance to really show what they've got. Uh, Lula, on the other hand, is in the unenviable position of having to deliver. Uh, rarely that happens. Oh, he's in the un, he is in the not so unenviable position of being out of prison. You right. know, he was actually, uh, he's just actually been through a trial by fire. And, uh, and I an, think insur was, an insurrection, basically. Yeah. Well, it was a political persecution. Yeah. His problem was he was too successful. I mean, when you you can be liberal and Bernie Sanders as long as you crash and burn and then you right. become a mascot or a pet. But if you actually threaten to change the society and to actually do things, then you become dangerous. And Lula did that. And uh, he's now becoming dangerous outside of Britain. I mean, his, I think he was... I think the whole BRICS uh, e e economic coalition was his brainchild. Uh, he was certainly one of the founders. And Refresh he, everybody. We're speaking in shorthand, okay. and that's unfair. Yeah, Who is, is Lula okay. to people? Lula at this is president, uh, erstwhile and now current president of, of Brazil. Uh, he replaced, he, he won decisively over Bolsonaro, who many consider kind of like Brazil's Trump, although I Trump don't think of the tropics is what they call. Yeah, him. I, I think Trump is pretty uniquely American, but right. you know he's a fascist. Okay, that's that's right. you know I think we can agree there. Um, and he had a vision of not only Brazil but of the world, um, and his uh, his his idea, or at least you know the the thing that he pushed was what we call BRICS. That's Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South America. In a or South of, Africa. Or South Africa. Did I say South Africa? South Africa, I'm sorry. Yeah, South Africa is kind of a counterweight to the European Union and the G7 and, and that. And, uh, and it's been pretty, pretty successful. As a matter of fact, you know, little, little Marco, little Marco Rubio actually likes blurted out the truth the other night. He says, well, well, if these countries become successful and and they're converting like Africa and South America to their side, I mean, then we we won't be able to sanction anybody anymore. Right. <laughs> it's like, Schmarco, that was Schmarco. you're not supposed to admit that, but that's true. Right, and that's part of the reason why. I mean, there's a lot of other reasons, but the reason why um, that uh, that Russia Russia's economy is actually recovering, that Russia wasn't crushed by the sanctions and by being kicked off of the SWIFT system, which is the big international financial system, was there was a whole nother economic world out there that was bigger than 
the G7. And they've decided that uh, screw the petrodollar. And to remind everybody, when we went off of the gold standard, the way that we could keep the primacy of American currency dollar is, is to get into an agreement with Saudi Arabia that any transaction involving their oil could only be conducted in dollars, can be only denominated in dollars. And that is enormous because oil just dwarfs. I mean, you know, just makes everything else minuscule. It is the single busy, biggest commodity sold on planet Earth because everybody needs energy. And so that, so because people had to, had to buy their oil in dollars, pretty much it meant almost all the transaction, over 80% of the world's transaction in the world's global trade was conducted in dollars. And so there was a demand for dollars, you know, in, in kind of the same way that Stephanie Kelton, Kelton says, you know, about taxing. You don't tax to raise revenue. We can, we, we've got our own currency we can print. Right. You tax to have a, make a demand for U.S. currency, and then you can control things, and uh, or you can get you can get have some control over what happens. So that is lose, that's breaking up now. It's not like it's going to disappear overnight. I mean, you know, like old habits run deep. But the fact that particularly the sanctions, and that it's and that's not just Russia. I mean, Cuba has been crushed, still is being crushed, like over 60 years after their revolution. And that's because, not because the rest of the world isn't willing to do business with Cuba, it's just that we threaten the rest of the world. Like if you do any significant, we, we, we give some exceptions here and there, but we have to give the exceptions. So like if the rest of the world deals with Cuba, you have to deal with it on US terms or we will sanction you. It's been a very eviscerating kind of thing. And it's just, it is basically what the U.S. foreign policy has become. Instead of like, you know, developing a world of cooperation and getting together to solve the world's problems, of which there are many, uh, you know, we just decide to use, you know, just swing these, these cudgels around, you know, economic cudgels to just, for the benefit of actually not us, the American people, I mean, for the benefit of the very few people who actually run and own this country. And that is... That yeah, but is does it, I often wonder about that. Do we need to worry about China becoming a superpower or Russia becoming a superpower when the, 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 the commodity is no longer something palpable? It's money. We're no longer worried about the cinnamon trade or, you know, maybe oil, but pretty oh, soon. De definitely oil. Right. Definitely. We don't have I mean, We may not long term. We, the people may not have any long term. Actually, actually, we, the people might have some breathing room on this. So is there anything like, you know, we, we you're led to believe, well, we need the mil military to protect the, the, the trade routes and the Persian Gulf and you know, the cinnamon trade and the nutmeg trade. But globalism is really the flow of money. And you do you need a military to protect the flow of yeah. money? You yes, do. you do. It's look, you know, people are now coming to the conclusion about about local police forces. They're not there to protect the population. They're there to protect power and to protect property. Right. That's it. 
They don't have an illegal obligation to protect you or save your life, you know, as we saw down in Uvalde. But, right. uh, and so likewise, you know, um, people were, are, are, are uh, uh, expressing alarm that China is building high-speed rail in, in, in African countries and in third world countries. And uh, what do we do? We build military bases. And right. that's a real projection of power. But like all other countries who project power over the world, I just went to a website, I forgot the name of it, but uh, I'll look it up again, where you can just, <clears throat> basically, it's a view of the world as a globe, and you can turn it around with your cursor. And there's a dot <clears throat> at every place that there's a US military base that we know of. And there's almost a 1000 dots, and you can click on the dot, and it'll give you all the details of what what's there. By the way, Janet Yellen, our Treasury Secretary, obviously listened to last week's professor and Marianne. Did you see the story? You're nodding. She, your... she did. Wow. What happened? She complained, along with the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, Janet Yellen said that China is a problem because it's lending money to poor countries and putting them into a permanent cycle of debt in order to manipulate them. And we were talking about that last week. Is is I said is the belts and oh, road. Well, talk about projection there. I know. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was I went, oh my God, this that's exactly what uh we were talking about last week. Uh the IMF model. Mm. That mm -hmm. apparently there are uh, China <clears throat> has gangsters for wouldn't it be capitalism? What is China? <laughs> A hybrid? That's, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, they they practice capitalism much more adeptly than uh, nominal capitalistic countries do. Right. You know, Let, let's turn. That, that's about. a that's a kind of interesting point that's come up. I think um, some of the more influential left uh, economists <clears throat> have been kind of talking about how the U.S. economy is really not predicated uh, on industrial production. Of course, it's always had um, an important finance capital uh, orientation. So this de-dollarization process that's starting to take place is, of course, going to have big consequences for that oh, yeah. element of the of the U.S. economy. But the other component is, of course, this military Keynesianism, you know, so that Marianne has just been talking about, these military bases and building up military infrastructure. But the other component is, of course, this high tech and establishing monopolies around these high-tech kind of platforms, the patents, the control over these platforms, suppressing TikTok and trying to eliminate the competition from China in the high-tech realm, um, because what's changing in, you know, as a source of wealth here is no longer what we think of as classic capitalism involving trade and exchange and, you know, um, you know, these kind of sort of factors that we would have understood as part of industrialization in the 19th and then through the 20th century, but now is much more like a neo-feudal regime of collecting rents, right? So it's like, you know, this platform is a territory upon which 
you know, which you can control. It's not a market. I mean, this is something that Yanis Varoufakis has been mentioning, and I think he has a new book coming out that's going to lay this out more clearly. Uh, in addition to the comments and the interviews that he's been he's been doing about how something like Amazon is not actually a market. So the marketplace in Amazon is not a market. It's something that is controlled by a feudal lord who gets <laughs> rents from it. And so this isn't normal capitalism. In some ways, we're moving away, at least here in the West, from capitalism. And that's why you know, there's such vicious competition over controlling these high-tech kind of platforms because that's what we have now that we offshored all of our industrial capacity to China. And um, so in some ways, China is actually still holding um, much more of a kind of capitalist, you know, they want win-win. I mean, this is the theory. I mean, China's sort of approach is, as we discussed last week, this win-win um, investment and trade. Um, and that is actually the theory behind, you know, uh, David Ricardo's uh, understanding of trade, which is like the core of capitalism is that, you know, you find where your competitive advantage is and then you get what you don't have from someone else through trade that benefits both sides. It's supposed to be a win-win, right? I mean, unfortunately, it doesn't seem like that's exactly how it worked and developed over history. It's given us the system that we have now, but that's theoretically what China is interested in is exchanges that are win-win where i can do this for you or you what you, you you can do for me and we both benefit out of it right um but also the commodities when you were mentioning that david i think actually commodities are now going to be fought over very seriously i mean it's not just oil and some other things but bolivia just uh floated the suggestion that perhaps there needs to be an opec for lithium so thinking about the green economy of the future the resource of lithium for batteries uh, absolutely crucial for storing green energy and making it possible uh, there are a few countries that have very serious lithium deposits and they want to make sure that they can have some kind of commodity control over prices so that they're not going to be defrauded in the new you know, economy. So I think there are going to at least be some key commodities and resources that are really important. Um, and in this new order, I mean, basically um, Lula and BRICS and uh, China and Lavrov just get, had an interesting op-ed article uh, in some weird publication. He's the Russian foreign was, minister. Yeah, the foreign minister of, of Russia. This They've become very, very aggressive in and clear in their rhetoric that they think that the West system is, you know, um, totally bankrupt now. It's clear that it's not meant to be fostering genuine development in the world, but it's a closed club and that they recognize they're not part of it anymore. So they're just going to forge all these other economic and trading and military alliances so that they can establish a different world order that um, is based on mutual benefit and advantage. Um, it's very clear that that kind of process is underway. Okay. Um, I think it would be really great to have somebody come on and discuss yeah. de-dollarization on, on the show. On Guerrilla History, we will be having Richard Wolf on yeah. in the coming week or two to discuss it. But there are others who also, like Michael Hudson, um, new book would out. also be, I think, a really good guest. Be a great, on, on this. It would be with with as office hours merges into a more uh, 
organized Friday night. I, I would love that for, for a Friday night. I, I want to turn to the leak, how a 20-something gamer was able to get his hands on supposedly highly classified documents. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know if that's true or not. And, and then I'd like to talk about Yemen. But I first want to talk about Rahima.org. If you enjoy any part of this episode, then you are obligated to go to Rahima.org, R-A-H-I-M-A.org. We have a crisis here in America. We create refugees. We don't take them. In, we take some in. And the ones who are lucky enough to make it here to America, like the rest of us, are struggling to put food on their tables and into their bellies. So you have an obligation to go to Rahima.org, R-A-H-I-M-A.org, and part with the $5 that you were planning to spend tomorrow on a union-busting cup of Starbucks Frappuccino mm -hmm. uh, and give that to Rima.org. Let's spend a few minutes, Professor Adnan Hussein, talking about your amazing parents. Well, I really appreciate you um, bringing some attention to this. I hope uh, listeners um, will be generous. Everyone knows the cost of living has um, just skyrocketed, particularly food and food prices are, are uh, you know, so unaffordable. Um, and also the fact that it seems like uh, good quality organic food is always so expensive and people are priced out of being able to actually eat and take care of themselves for their nutrition and their health. And so Rahima uh, Foundation in the Bay Area which was established by my mother uh, in our garage 30 odd years ago, um, is an organization that seeks to help people with food, rent, and utility assistance. They do a monthly um, food uh, distribution, um, but they're facing a real crisis because um, there are many more people who need. They've had record numbers coming to them for help, while at the same time, the same economic factors that are pushing people because of inflation and high prices uh, to come to Rahima also means that a lot of people, particularly in the Bay Area where the high tech sector has been suffering all kinds of problems, Silicon Valley bank collapse, Google laying off thousands and thousands of employees, et cetera, is that the donor base is also feeling very stressed. People can't afford to donate. And the food bank that they are associated with, Second Harvest, is not able to make the same uh, amount of food available from their sources. And so you have a kind of perfect storm where, um, you know, it's, it's, it's costing a lot more to try and help out um, a growing number of people who need it. So um, it started with refugees, as you mentioned, David, uh, the United States has been producing refugees around the world. I mean, the global, the unequal global situation has, of course, economically created a lot of people who need to migrate. The climate situation is starting to create more disasters and, you know, climate migrants, but also particularly our wars uh, that we should feel a little bit more uh, responsible for. We take in very few refugees and those who 
do come are often, um, you know, not able to support themselves well. They need a lot of help and assistance. So if you can help the Iraqis, the Bosnians, the Somalis, the Afghanis, uh, the Syrians who end up in the Bay Area, we would greatly appreciate it. Yes. So go to uh, rahima.org and uh, do be generous. Thanks so much. And thanks yeah. again, David, for bringing attention to this. Well, no, thank you for f finding a, a charity that we can give to and trust. You know, there, there, there's an instinct among uh, certain Americans who, who, you know, if I just give money to, you know, the Red Cross, I've done my part. And then you find out that the Red Cross is throwing million dollar fundraisers at Mar-a-Lago and the money isn't going where it's supposed to go. And Rahima.org, the money goes to where it's supposed to go. And I always say, if you go to Rahima.org, R-A-H-I-M-A.org, the food is the first thing you see. And the food, pardon the expression, is morally superior to any other types of food. It is a primarily vegetarian, vegan. I, I know you, you said last week that there's some chicken involved, but when you're talking about whole foods, healthy foods, beans, rice, good rice, good beans, good grains, fresh vegetables, $5 can feed a family of four, uh, at least make dinner for a, a family of four. If there's an economy of, you know, if you have purchasing power, an economy of scale, that $5 that you give to Rahima.org is, is going to fill some bellies. So if you have $5 that you don't need and you're going to you're going to waste it on a lottery ticket instead of give it to rahima.org you will burn in hell. Uh I'm joking sort of. But seriously, if you're going to if you have a choice between buying an effing lottery ticket for $5 or giving to rahima.org uh, and, and you choose the lottery ticket instead, there's something seriously wrong with you and you should be ashamed of yourself. Uh, you will feel better if you give to Rahima.org. I was talking to the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, and then I'll get off the uh, scold. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn, we were talking about Jeremiah Wright and the, the necessity for scolds in religion. I would love to d bring on... Because uh, he last uh, last yesterday, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn was really <laughs> angry and started scolding uh, these reverends who, you know, speak out after gun violence, but never say, get these effing guns off this. You know, they they offer up these reverends offer up prayers, but don't attack uh, the gun manufacturers. We need scolds in the religious community. Uh, and I'd love to have a do an entire show about uh, scolding people like the Reverend Jeremiah Wright, whose speech, by the way, you know, God bless America, God damn it. And you, you hear that whole speech and not just the sound bite. You're going, wow, this guy, this guy should have been secretary of state under Barack Obama instead of under the bus. So let's turn to Yemen. And as, as we were talking about Rahima.org, I was thinking about, you know, what, what is news? And you were talking about refugees and 
we have more refugees in the world now than we did after World War II. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, the, of course, the global population is much higher, uh, but it's definitely the largest uh, group of refugees since World War II. I mean, at any right. other time in the last, you know, 60, 70 years. Um, and um, I think at some estimates were that there were 50 to 60 million people who were uh, displaced. And it's um, just going to keep getting wars. It's going to keep getting worse with global. Yeah. So I wrote down like, you know, not necessarily Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but, you know, you need food, you need shelter, you need security, safety, you need medicine. And uh, most of the stories that we discuss in America uh, are not about food, shelter, medicine, and real safety. Not ginning up fears about your safety, but genuine security and safety. And, you know, as you're trying to parse out the news and figure out what should I be paying attention to? What is noise? Ask yourself, okay, they want me to read this news item. Does it involve food, shelter, medicine, and real, real safety? If it doesn't, uh, it's probably a distraction uh, and not, I guess you have to follow it. But in Yemen, let's talk about Yemen. Uh, do the people have food, shelter, medicine, safety in Yemen? And who, what role did the United States, what role did the, the Obama administration play in Yemen's lack of food, shelter, medicine, security and safety? And who's helping Yemen these days? Is America helping Yemen? Well, America is one of the donors um, for, you know, it's just sell the weapons to Saudis, uh, have them cause this devastation, you know, give them diplomatic cover, help them uh, blockade uh, Yemen, provide targeting, uh, you know, special, you know, uh, you know, data, um, provide them with intel and surveillance <laughs> and do all those things. But then, you know, uh, Send them forty million or you know hundred million in in uh, aid um, as part of the UN um, attempt to raise. I mean, they're way below. I was just reading; they're way below the target, which was a four billion dollars in aid that they wanted to raise. They only have about one billion, um, so they're three behind. They're only twenty five percent of of their of their target. Uh, but the United States has played a huge role in enabling. The Saudis, um, you know, to invade. Well, the Saudis at the head of quite a few other Gulf monarchies. Let's remember, Yemen is the only one of the Gulf uh, countries that is a, you know, republic. All the others are these um, monarchies, um, and um, they're the largest population. And um, because they have a very geostrategic uh, location where uh, so much trade has to go you know, uh, by their shores. If you're going to the Suez Canal uh, up the Red Sea, you got to go by Yemen from the Indian Ocean. And so that has encouraged these 
uh, foreign powers to try and exert influence since the 19th century. Various, you know, uh, it was part of the British Empire, part of Yemen was under the British, the South Yemen. Uh, the Saudis have always tried to exert influence um, on, on Yemeni politics. And so they thought that it was going to be a short intervention to restore a government that they supported. Um, it turned into an eight-year war that has caused the largest humanitarian crisis, according to the UN, currently existing. Largest cholera, enough, largest cholera epidemic. Yeah, there are four outbreaks, major outbreaks, um, diphtheria. Uh, cholera. I'm forgetting the two other, but these are oh, polio appears to be, uh, you know, returning um, as well. Uh, so a lot of diseases, um, you know, have that you wouldn't expect in a, today's world to be a serious problem have reemerged because there hasn't been vaccination. The entire healthcare system has been disrupted. Medicines have been under interdict because of the blockade that the Saudis and their allies um, have imposed upon Yemen. Um, so it has had a disastrous effect. Hundreds of thousands have been killed by the military invasion and the fighting. But on top of the bombardment and so on, there have been, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people who have suffered starvation, hunger, degradation of their health as a result of the extreme sanctions and blockade on imports. Um, and it's a uh, Luckily, however, there is some light at the end of the tunnel because um, there has been peace negotiations. There's been a, a brief ceasefire in effect since last fall, and they're negotiating for a longer term. And who ceasefire. orchestrated these peace talks? Oman. Um, Oman and the UN appear to have been um, the key figures, uh, but obviously the political, geopolitical situation changed, I think, fairly dramatically in the region with. China's brokering of normalization of relations between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And um, although the Houthis are an indigenous North Yemeni, um, you know, political force, um, they're often seen uh, as a an Iranian proxy. And in order to allow negotiations between the parties to be fostered and successful, there needed to be some kind of agreement and peaceful relations between Saudi Arabia and Iran to create those conditions. That has been made possible by uh, the recent announcement in Beijing of, uh, of normalization. Um, the embassy is opening up now, apparently, uh, in Saudi, the Iranians are opening up the embassy. And so that has created new conditions that are allowing for Saudi Arabia to pursue brokering or pressuring, you might say, the uh, internationally recognized uh, government. We say that we just mean that the West recognizes, um, you know, the a certain part of the government of, of Yemen um, that wasn't elected to be point, you know, in point of fact, let's uh, remember so, that they weren't can elected. Can I interject here? Because I think yes. a lot yeah. of people don't understand this. So the Houthis, were they in, were they running the government eight years ago or were they a faction whose leaders, the government's leadership came out of they they are Is no they are they are a faction that opposed the military dictator uh oh, okay. ali abdullah saleh okay um who so it was a democratically elected government Yemen's, overthrown if that was 
that's what happened. Yeah, in 2011, when you started having the Arab Spring, Yemen was among yeah. the places where there were protests and there already had emerged a kind of resistance from this from the Houthis. They joined together, created a groundswell mm-hmm. um, that uh, forced uh, President Saleh, who had ruled at least North Yemen since 1978, I believe, and had after unification, after the Cold War ended in the early 90s, you know, there was a move to reunify. And then there were attempts by the southern Yemenis to break away again. Uh, So there's been a lot of turmoil and civil war. But under uh, President Saleh in, you know, after 2011, he was forced out and he was given a kind of amnesty, still was, you know, pulling a lot of strings. um, and, uh, you know, government power was transferred over to his second in command, who happened to be a southern Yemeni, which was important. Um, and um, did America do was anything to be a process? There was supposed to be a process toward uh, elections and constitutional reforms and so on. Well, All yeah. of that was disrupted, however, you know, we're, by we're, we're, continuing. Um, you know, protests and the Saudi invasion to try and restore and make sure that he would stay in power. Did America do anything right in this? Did we side with the with democracy? Did, who did we end up? I, I know that no, Kerry, I know that uh, Secretary of State John Kerry under Obama can't travel. Uh, it has to be careful. He could be arrested for uh, uh, authorizing the arms sales to Saudi Arabia. Uh, did did we mishandle this as usual? Well, it's hard to know. Was this a, a, a blunder or a crime? You know, like, <laughs> right. I think it was, of course, uh, a bit of both. Um, yeah. I think, I, I mean, it was definitely a blunder from the Saudi and UAE's perspective. They expected, you know, this is the time that MBS was trying to assert himself. He was the defense minister in Saudi Arabia, and there was a lot of jockeying for power. Right. And he thought that this would help establish his credentials to take over and be the preeminent, you know, ruler. Um, you know, nominally, it's his father, you know, Prince uh, Salman, but he's the one who's um, actually running the show. Um, so we thought a two week, you know, victory invasion um, that he could also be George Bush saying mission accomplished on uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> the aircraft carrier. Uh, it didn't work out that way. And so there's definitely a blunder. Uh, but the United States clearly could have put the brakes on this uh, early Um and it has let it go on for eight years and provided all kinds of logistical and military support in addition to selling the arms, but logistical yeah, and military support. I was support. going to say that most of our wars are just business opportunities or flat out money laundering operations. Right. Well, last week I asked if, if Biden and Blinken are okay with Oman orchestrating the talks. And if this works out, and, and does Biden get any credit for saying, you know what, we're not uh, a trusted interlocutor in this region anymore, better Oman, uh, they're going to trust that, that country more than they're, if you can do this, go ahead. And, you know, as, as Obama would say, leading from behind. Uh, I don't think he has any choice. I mean, uh, it's pretty clear the 
the Middle East, led by the Saudis, are pretty much telling us, hey, you know, you're not calling the shots here anymore. But he can screw it up. I mean, he doesn't have any choice, but he can make it worse. He can. You could always make it worse. Right. So. I mean, is there something something to praise Biden over by just saying you're on? If anything, what it seems to be, you know, if you combine it with um, the pullout from Afghanistan, in some ways, it's a suggestion that you got you got to divest from the Middle East because, you know, despite the best efforts of attempting to shape the fate of the region in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, and Libya, uh, things are not really working out so well for U.S. regime change uh, operations. And There's some glorious wars. Yeah, right. and so maybe, and, and, you know, I think there is a sense that with the Ukraine conflict and support for um, Ukraine and resisting, um, you know, Russian control there that, uh, you know, our attention has to be, um, you know, shifted out of the Middle East and to these other theaters and in particular uh, Taiwan, China. China, you know, I mean, and that we can't keep up complete global domination um, right. all over the world. Uh, maybe that's that's healthy. You know? Right. Let's turn to something that I know Professor Marianne Cummings wants to talk about. You were the first one to alert me to what a fraud the kidnapping attempt on Gretchen Whitmer, Governor Gretchen Whitmer, was how it was orchestrated by the FBI. I think they still ended up sending some of these people to prison. They actually ended up sending the guy that they they claimed was the ringleader and his... uh, and his second in command, I guess, to prison, mm-hmm. the one that even the court acknowledged had been psychologically troubled since childhood. Right. So, but, you know, I'm going to work on, you know, you, you have an FBI and you pay them a lot of money and you got it. We, we want to see our tax dollars at work. Mm-hmm. So somebody's got to go to jail. Uh, a 21 year old. Pardon me. Kid, mm-hmm. this kid, sorry, 21 years old, been in the Air Massachusetts National Guard for three years, uh, got his hands on all this important intelligence that has brought our military to its knees. This is one of the biggest document dumps in 10 years, and it's revealed sources in Ukraine. Uh, it's, it speaks volumes uh, to how trusting our our military is with young people, and I, I, you know, I know I always like to look for the 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 positive, and, and I think it's great that we have a military that sees a a twenty one year old kid and says, "Hey, we're going to trust you with all our tippy tippy top top highly classified secrets," and he let them down. We, we they thought they could trust. A 21-year-old kid with the most important secrets, lives on the line, and uh, turns out you can't trust him. Is that basically... Actually, uh, I think they could trust him to be him. (laughs) I mean, one way of looking at this is that things worked out just as planned. Is any of this intelligence that got leaked actionable? Is it anything we didn't know already? 
How how? Well, I don't know who we is, but you know, there was one part where they were admitting what the real kill statistics were. They're probably even higher for Ukraine, but that was pretty consistent. What they the document showed, and it was as recent as early March, right? So, um, the BBC Russian, uh, along with a place called uh, Media Zona, it's I think it's an Estonia group have been tracking Ukrainian casualties and Russian casualties. And the Russian casualties are, you know, it, depending on what you believe, like six times lower to 10 times lower than Ukrainian casualties. Mm-hmm. And, the, you know, it's certainly early as, as early as last November, early December, both Mac, um, who is it? Mark Milley and uh, Ursula von der Leyen, the EU head of the EU, gave a figure of over a hundred thousand Ukrainians killed. You know, within about a week or so of each other. So, what? okay, it's a. Of course, these numbers are known by people in the military and people in the intelligence group. I mean, everybody, you know, the people running this war know these numbers, but right. maybe not known to the public, but. How is it actionable? The public doesn't have a say over this. Right. Right. Uh, and he'll end up going down and oh, yeah. destroyed. And uh, unfortunately, Marjorie, t- by the way, can you hear me OK? Yeah. Because we have a, a satellite feed coming in from Mar-a-Lago. That, oh, my. Yeah. It's this is ex- I don't mean to intimidate anybody here, but this is. Yeah. Uh, but. Uh, yeah, uh, he'll he'll go down. I was reading about uh, Julian Assange, who looks like they're going to go through and extradite him and bring him to America. There is not a single death that can be traced to WikiLeaks. No, not a single person died. They've in, in the courts. They've tried to prove that he ended up killing uh, assets, intelligence assets. Didn't happen. We're we're out of time, unfortunately. Uh, th- this is great. Th- these have just been absolutely fantastic. I, Profe- I think we should dig out. Uh, by the way, just to interject, I think we should dig out uh, Valerie Plame from you know the memory hole and do a contrast and compare. Outing, that well, it's basically outing a deep uh, undercover agent the person who was posing as an energy analyst to get into Iran and actually get the ground truth on their energy systems. And, you know, I guess deep undercover or whatever the the, uh, term was meant that, like the Mission Impossible, Mm -hmm. should you or your team be caught, we disavow all all knowledge of of you and your team and your mission. Right kind of thing. But uh, yeah. Fantastic. Professor Marianne Cummings is a particle physicist with the Fermi Lab and an amazing artist and parks commissioner for Aurora, Illinois. And thank you. Follow her on Twitter at Razor Girl. Professor Adnan Hussein is the chairman of the religion department at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario and host of the Mudgeless podcast and Gorilla History. 
very quickly who who are our guests your guests are well the last episode of the much list was about uh the 20th anniversary of the iraq war if you want more analysis on that check it out um we have uh, uh next week coming up um we were just talking about yemen we have a great guest uh shireen uh Al ademi who's a yemeni scholar and academic and we talked with her about the history of sanctions and also about what's happening recently in the negotiations in in yemen so check that out on guerrilla history fantastic and as always go to rahima.org i saw in the chat that some people have donated and you will feel better tomorrow it, don't giving money to charities like rahima.org is a form of prayer and it you know it's one thing to ask for things uh but a, a great form of prayer is to donate to a food pantry where you know every penny and then some is going to go into the bellies of American families. And I can't think of a better form of prayer than giving $5 to Rahima.org. And I, I see in the chat room that people are doing that. And uh, to those of you who haven't donated, you're going to burn in hell. You're going to burn in hell uh, if you're thinking of buying a lottery ticket instead of giving to Rahima.org. I can assure you to the core of my very being, you will burn in perpetuity in, uh, in hell. Uh, I just want to point out Rahima <laughs> means mercy. Compassion. Uh, so, you know, do what you feel like you can do. I'm just saying, objectively speaking, I know we're out of time, but objectively speaking, you have $5 and you can buy a lottery ticket or a non-union frappuccino at Starbucks, or you could literally give it to Rahima.org and feed a family on $5 and you choose a lottery ticket over feeding a family. I know that you will burn in hell. And the only way to redeem yourself, this is the way we have to talk as leftists. We got We have to pick up the religious cudgel and, and beat people into submission. Anyway, if you have five dollars, give it to Rahima. Thank you so much, Professor Adnan Hussein. Thank you. You're listening to The David Feldman Show. You happy, self-actualized hump. Hump. <laughs>